Good morning. I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and uh, we're going to, as Ryan said, jump into Jude. I'm going to pray for y'all. I invite you to pray for me, and then we'll, we'll start. So, Father, I thank you for this morning and all the ways that we've already celebrated and expressed our gratitude to you for today. And we slow down, we take a breath, and we remember that you're sovereign, that you lead us. None of us here are, are here by accident, but we're here because we have a God who loves and leads us. And so we, in the coming moments, just thank you for your presence, that you are here, Spirit of God. And we ask for our presence, that we would stay rooted in these moments and have hearts that are open and eyes open, ears open to, to hear and, and receive and to plant all the things that you want in our lives. And I, I really pray for my own heart, my words, my desire more than anything is to, to love and serve my friends and to seeing you clearly, Jesus, this morning. We pray this all in your name, God's people said. Amen. Well, we've already celebrated Mother's Day a lot today, and I think it, it would probably be right and fitting to celebrate another season here in the life of Edmund, which is garage sale season. <laughs> Out in full force, right? Any, any like hardcore garage sailors in the house? A few of you, some of you aren't admitting it. I know there are more than that. I see you out. Uh, garage sales are, are wonderful. Uh, also, there's just a reality, too, of like the, the ever-present opportunity of finding that hidden treasure in thrift stores. So any like hardcore thrifters here? A few of you? That's right. I was hanging out with my friend Andy Nine, one of our deacons, on Friday, and uh, he, we, I don't know what kind of conversation we had that led to this, but Luke, who's amazing, his son, a t-shirt came up, and by request, Luke wore the t-shirt for me today, the first time in the history of me being a pastor that I request somebody wear something on a Sunday just for me. But he, this might not mean something to 90% of you, but he is wearing a vintage Carmen t-shirt, as in the Christian artist... <laughs> He bought it. I'm not going to make you stand up, but you can find Luke. You at least wave to everybody. He bought it for 50 cents. I expressed to him that it is priceless, and he needs to pass it down to generations in his family. I bring that up because I was reading an article that probably some of you came across this week, and it was an article about a woman named Amanda Young. No, excuse me, Laura. Laura Young. Laura lives in Austin, Texas, and in 2018, she was going to a thrift store. And she's, you know, looking for treasure. And then she sees on the floor under a table a statue, a bust. And so she likes the look of it. She, she picks it up. Surprisingly, it's heavier than she thought it was going to be. And so she puts it in her cart and buys it at that Austin, Texas Goodwill for $34.99. She's so excited about her thrift store find that she buckles the statue up in her back seat and sends some pictures to friends. Hey, look at this cool statue I scored at the Goodwill. And then as it sits in her living room in the coming days and weeks and months, she just cannot shake this feeling that, like, there is something unique about this piece of art. It's not just some thrift store find. It had real significant weight to it. It seemed old. The closer she examined it, it seemed beautiful and special. And so she begins to just like network and resource and ask questions. And, and she goes to the University of Texas and to their his, history and art department, has, shows them a picture, brings it by the campus. Hey, can you speak into this? Do you think I have something here that is special? She 
she connects with appraisers. She eventually connects with the famous auction house, house of Sotheby's, and she connects with an expert there, and they finally are able to say, yeah, you actually do have something significant here. This is a statue that for decades upon decades has been missing and was once in a museum in Germany, and it is over 2,000 years old. It's a statue of a son of Pompey who's defeated in a civil war by Julius Caesar. It was in a German museum, and, and what happened is sometime during World War II, the United States Army was in that, that region. They were in that town fighting Nazi Germany. They took control of that museum as a base in operations. And some, we suspect, good old boy from Texas saw that statue and said, that needs to go on my nightstand. And so he, he takes it home to the States, right? And then we just surmise then that over decades of decades, Grandpa passes away. Who wants the weird broken nose statue that was in Grandpa's living room? Not me. Put it in the goodwill pile, and then Laura Young finds it on the floor and senses there's something special about it. This statue is going to be on display until May of 2023 in the San Antonio Museum of Art, after which it will find its way back to the museum in Germany from which it was taken. I bring that, what does this have to do with Jude? You are rightly asking yourself, right? Well, Jude, in a real way, is is hidden treasure that has been forgotten. It's, it's, it's something lost in plain sight in the life of the church in many ways. The, the, several theologians have referred to the book of Jude as the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. In fact, there's a book about the book of Jude written in 1975 called The Most Neglected Book of the New Testament. And we might come to see in the coming weeks maybe why Jude is, is not um, studied in the church as the letter should be. But what I want to invite us to in the next four weeks as we study this book together is approach the book as the hidden treasure that it is. We might be familiar with some of the aspects of the book, but chances are, if you're like me, when you hear the word Jude, you just think of Paul McCartney singing, right? And, and here we have something rich and beautiful that's timely for us. This book only takes four minutes to read. It is short, but it is significant and powerful, and it's profoundly timely for us in this moment in our church, and it's always been profoundly timely for every moment in the history of the church. So we're going to be begin to explore today, which is three questions about the book of Jude. The author, who is Jude? Two, secondly, to whom is Jude written? Who's receiving this letter? And then lastly, what's the heart of the letter, the purpose? Why is Jude writing this letter? So one, first, who is Jude? And like all ancient letters, it begins with identifying the author, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. And so the first thing Jude wants us to know about who he is, is he's going to associate himself with two people to help us discern his identity, to help us get to know him. And the first and most important thing he wants us to know is that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. Now that word that Jude uses, servant, in, in the Greek, it's doulos. It means someone under the total authority and control of another so Jude is saying, hey, if you want to know me, the first thing you need to know about me is that I am totally 
under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. In an age where most people are unsettled and offended by a notion of being under authority, and in an age where we value autonomy and independence, perhaps above all, Jude comes out the gate and he's saying, hey, there's something you need to know about me that's the most important thing, and that is I'm a man under the authority of God's King, Jesus Christ. And this is important because we need to keep it before us for the entirety of this study. He's setting the tone and the pace for everything we're going to cover in this letter. And, and the fact that he's making this point first, in light of what he's going to say second, is really significant because let's see this. The second thing Jude wants us to see is that he's not just a servant of Jesus Christ first, but secondly, he's the brother of James. Doesn't he, didn't anybody grow up with like an older sibling? that was really popular or like made really good grades or was a star athlete and you like for a season, if not the entirety of your life, have been identified in relation to them, right? You go to high school and you're in your first class and the teacher's like, oh, I know you. You're, you're Stacy's little sister. And you're like, here it goes. Awesome, right? Right? Or uh, there's a friend group or something. Well, James knows something of that, right? And so James in a real way, or excuse me, Jude in a real way is, is introducing himself and he's saying, yeah, hey, I'm Jude. You know James's little brother? Yeah, that's, that's, that's who I am. You know my sibling. And so the natural question for, for many of us is like, okay, well then who is James, right? Well, James was a really important leader in the early church. That's like all he needed to say writing this letter is, is hey, I'm, I'm James's brother and everybody who received it would be like, oh, we know, we know James. And so, yeah, we know, we know Jude. We're getting a feel of who's writing to us. We know his identity, because James is, is an important leader. If, if you actually just take your Bible and flip back probably just like anywhere from five to ten pages, you will find yourself in, a, in another book of the Bible entitled James, written by Jude's brother. He was a leader in the early church. If you read Acts 15, you see that he oversaw the first church council. And then really interestingly, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's next to Jesus, the most important figure in the New Testament, wrote 75% of the New Testament. When After Jesus revealed himself to Paul, when he was an enemy and a terror to the church, Jesus seeks Paul and saves Paul. And then Paul spends a season, years of learning and being restored and, and, and building his faith. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with the leaders of the church. And he writes about this in Paul's first letter that he, he writes to a church. And it's in the letter of Galatians. And this is what Paul says. And he mentions James. He says in Galatians 2 verses 9, James and, and Cephas, Peter, and John, who seem to be pillars... So he's referencing Peter and John, who we read a lot about in the Gospel of Mark, people really close to Jesus, disciples. And then James, he's saying these three men seem to be leaders among leaders, the pillars of this gospel community of people following Jesus. And they perceived the grace that was given to me, and they gave the right hand of fellowship to me. And so Paul is saying, hey, one of the most significant, impactful leaders of the early church is James. He actually gives a seal, a stamp of approval in a real way to Paul's ministry. But listen to what else Paul says about James in Galatians chapter 1. He's talking about his interaction and his call to ministry and his commission by these apostles. 
And he says, then after three days, I went up to Jerusalem and visited Cephas. It's uh, Peter, is who he's referring to, and remained with him for 15 days. So Paul hung out with Peter for a few weeks, but then he goes on to say, and I saw, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so if, if you caught that, Paul is saying that this leader in the early church, James, who's on the scene, who's, who's a pillar, one of the leaders among leaders, Paul is saying, hey, he's actually Jesus Christ's little brother, his half-brother, the son of Joseph and Mary. And we go back to the Gospels, and you can read in Gospels like Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 6, where Jesus is rejected in his hometown, and people ask, hey, is, is this not Jesus the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judas with us? Like, we know this guy. We know his family. And in the Gospels, too, upon close reading, you read in John chapter 7, John says that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Through his earthly ministry, Jesus' family thought he was nuts and crazy. But here we see in the early church, James went from not believing in Jesus to being a leader in the church. How did that happen? What happened in his life? What did he see? In one word, it's resurrection. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about Jesus appearing Upon his resurrection to people, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go check with them, talk to them, hear the story yourself, though some have fallen asleep. And then Paul writes next, Then he, Jesus, appeared to James. And then to all the apostles... So it's, it's just quick, right? Paul's just referencing this. But if we slow down and understand what's happening, it's like the beauty of love that Jesus is showing is that to his brother, that while Jesus was alive in his earthly ministry, thought he was nuts, Jesus, upon conquering death, goes and he seeks him out and reveals his resurrection and resurrection power. And loves his brother and says, this is who I am. I'm the very son of God. Believe in me. I died and I rose for you, my little brother James. And James encounters the risen Lord Jesus and he believes. And he becomes a leader in the church. All of Jesus' brothers believe. You read Acts chapter 1 and they're all there praying with the early church, waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit to come. And so let's just take a moment to explicitly connect the dots. If you haven't already, James introduces himself, servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. And we see in scripture that James is the brother of Jesus, which means Jude is the brother of Jesus. Jude is Jesus's little brother. Can we just stop for a moment on Mother's Day and just give it up for Mary? Like one of her boys is the savior of the world, which is impressive. And and then two of them wrote letters that made it into the canon of Scripture on top of that. Like, go marry, right? Give that woman a flower. <laughs> but more importantly, we need to stop and, and just be struck by the fact that what does Jude lead with? He doesn't lead. If I was writing the letter that Jude is writing to the early church, I would come out the gate with, hey, I'm Jude. I shared a bedroom with Jesus growing up, and we have the same mom. <laughs> Listen to everything I have to say. 
I'm going to borrow a lot of that authority, right? I'm going to come with swagger and pride. What does Jude do? He does the exact opposite. He leads with Jude, servant, under complete authority of Jesus Christ. He is my king. And yeah, I'm, I'm James's brother. You can connect the dots. That's not as important. I'm not Jesus's brother first and foremost. He is my, my king. And this tells us something really important about Jesus's identity. <laughs> it's just, I think if you're here this morning and you're just exploring the claims of Christianity or you just have a an interest about the Bible and the Christian faith and who Jesus is, or maybe you're back at church for the first time in a long time, just on behalf of all of us, if it hasn't been said, and I think it has, like, thanks for being here. It's an honor that you'd be here with us this morning. But one of the things I would invite you to consider and, and, and grapple with is like, if, if you have an older brother, you probably have never been tempted to worship him as Lord and Savior. <laughs> And Jude wasn't either, nor was James, until Jesus died and rose again. And then everything changed because they experienced the truth of who Jesus was, and it changed their life. They went from thinking that Jesus was crazy to the very Son of God and their King. And they take on leadership roles. James is going to give his life. He's going to be a martyr, Jesus' little brother. Because he will not deny the fact that Jesus is the divine son of God and savior of the world who died and rose again. So that's a powerful apologetic for the reality of the resurrection. Little brothers don't tend to worship big brothers as the son of God. Something changed, something they experienced, something real that they saw changed their relationship with Jesus. And it was his resurrection. But it also speaks to Jude's identity. Like Jude, you get a sense in this letter that Jude is really smart. It's evident already that it's really humble, but there's more than that going on here. This isn't just a sign of Jude's humility that he's, he's not leading with the, the fact that he's the brother of Jesus. He's giving us a glimpse into one of the major themes of the entire letter itself. He's saying a rightly ordered relationship with Jesus to truly know and follow and believe in him isn't just that we're part of the family of God and Jesus is our big brother, which is true for every Christian. But Jude is saying, Jesus is my master. He's my Lord. He's my king. He's submitted to Jesus. And that's going to be a theme, the obedience of following The lordship of Jesus is a theme that is going to be before us for the entirety of Jude's letter. So that's one. Who is Jude? That's who Jude is. But second, to whom is Jude writing? Who's receiving this letter? To those, he says in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. See, there's, there's two different answers to that question. Both are true. Who is Jude writing to? In a real way, he's writing to just primarily and plainly uh, a group of Christians in the early church. This letter was probably written around 60 AD, and we don't know exactly to what city or where this group of Christians was living. We, knew that, we know just by the content of the letter that they were 
probably Jews who had a, a deep understanding of the Old Testament, but there's a lot of mystery as to exactly what group received this. But we know that they had really some specific set of struggles and that on a deep level, Jude is speaking in to those struggles. But I think it's kind of beautiful that we don't know exactly who received the letter originally because in a real powerful way, even though it was written to them, it has been for the church for the last 2,000 years in every season. It's to us. So it's to this early group of Christians, but it's also to and for us. And he begins with, after he gives his identity, speaking to the identity of those who are in the church, a part of Christ Jesus. He says three things, something about our past, we're called, something about our present, we're beloved, and something about our future, that in Christ we're kept. We're called, speaking to our standing as believers powerfully that we've been brought into a relationship with Jesus. That Jesus has sought us and pursued us and loved us and called us into a relationship with the living God and displayed his power and love in our life. And whether you're studying the gospel of Mark like we have for the last year or whether you're looking at the entirety of scripture, one of the characteristics that you see about God is that he is a God who pursues, he comes after, he loves, he initiates. And Jude is saying, hey, you're called To love and follow Jesus means that you've been called by God, that you're also beloved in God the Father. The believers are the object of the the powerful affections of a heavenly Father. We can ask ourselves this morning, how does God feel about me? And if we're in Christ, the answer to that is, hey, you're beloved. The heavenly Father has deep, abiding, profound love You're cherished. You're adopted as a daughter and a son. And moreover, he says, hey, we have a future and a hope that we're kept for Christ Jesus. Jesus preserves his people now as we wait for the promises of God to be completely fulfilled. That word kept is going to be like a golden thread, a theme that runs through the entirety of the book of Jude in this letter. And then Jude, he, he reflects his heart and, and he shares his heart, but it reflects the heart of the Heavenly Father. He gives a blessing. Again, this is a, the pattern of a, an ancient letter. I want to give an introduction. I want to address who I'm writing to, and then I want to uh, convey a blessing and, and, and share my heart. And Jude says, may peace, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy. May mercy be multiplied that you, like, like all people he's writing to this early church, that there was a time where you were enemies of God. You were waging war against God. You had rejected and rebelled towards God. And you, not unlike where Jude finds himself now, Jude, I'm sure thinking about his life and his relationship to his brother before the resurrection, that you disregarded, that you belittled, that you rejected and yet, now we know that, that Jesus has loved and he, he has pursued and he died for us and he rose for, for us. So now our, our reality isn't judgment that we deserve from that rejection and rebellion, but our reality is receiving mercy that Jesus has paid a price for us on the cross for our behalf. That mercy is God giving us not what we deserve, but what Jesus took on for us that he didn't deserve. 
And Judah saying, I want you to experience the blessing that in a, in a deeper and richer way that you would be profoundly impacted by the truth of the mercy that you have. The shame, the darkness of shame would be laid waste to you by the light of mercy in God. He goes on to say, peace it's his blessing that peace and his prayer that peace would be multiplied, that the hostility that we've had with God has been brought to an end. Our war against him is over. We were once enemies, and now we're his children. We've been adopted. And this, this word peace that Jude is going to use isn't just speaking to the end of a conflict, but he's talking about the, the, the presence of purpose. He's saying that I want multiplied in you completeness and wholeness. And lastly, love. He's saying, hey, I want you to experience a multiplication that is not just a feeling from God, but more a biblical, godly love is a commitment to seek the ultimate good for another. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 about the love of God. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth? And listen to this. And to know, this is, this is so interesting. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's, there's a beautiful impossibility there. Paul's saying, I want you to know the love of God, but when it comes down to it, you can't fully know the love of God because it's too big to wrap your heart and your mind around. It is so profound and unimaginable and it's made known to us in Christ Jesus that you can spend all eternity exploring and trying to get to the depths of how much God loves you and there is no bottom to that well. And Judas saying, may, may that truth be multiplied in you and among you. Which leads us to the third question. Why is Jude writing the letter? So after this, these introductions and this blessing, this is what Jude has to say. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, whom long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, so Jude comes out the gate and he says, hey, I was eager, I longed to, I was excited to, to write to you about one thing, which was our common salvation. I wanted to celebrate with you about the beauty of the mercy and the peace and the love that we have in Christ Jesus. I wanted to have a party, right? I wanted to just, just actually just share with you the good news and how that just has profoundly changed who Jesus is and what he's done, what that has meant for us. I wanted to encourage, I wanted to instill you with courage in light of the truth of what God has done in our lives. But Jude loves the church. He loves these people and his love demands that he he take another direction 
the, the subject changed. You know, sometimes when you care about somebody, you want to go have a celebration, but it comes to your attention that you don't need to celebrate, you need to have an intervention. And that's what's happening here in a real way with Jude and the church. It's, it's, it's super appropriate that on Mother's Day that I get to honor my own wife and the awesome mom that she is, right? Anna's, a, Anna's an amazing mom. And there are days that she spent with the kids and I may be here at the church and I'm wrapping up work and uh, I'm beginning to think about coming home to my amazing wife who's an amazing mom and I long to be fun dad, right? All dads love to be fun dad, right? <laughs> and so I like to walk in our house and, and, and get to be fun dad, which means my three-year-old, his love language is, will you fight with me, right? Which means he doesn't want to snuggle. He wants to act like bulls and bang heads on the carpet floor. It, maybe he's going to hurt his math scores in the long term, but in the short term, he's having a lot of fun, Right? And I want to just talk to my other son about what he's reading and building and hang out with my daughters and look at what they've drawn or what they, you know. And, and so I long to be fun dad, but sometimes I walk into that house and whether it's a text from Anna or it's just what I sense walking in, I know that it's not most helpful for me to be fun dad because those children have been wild and out, right? And I start to change my language and I don't talk about your mom, I talk about my wife, right? Why has my wife had to tell you to do the dishes three times and you're ignoring her, right? Why did you talk back to my wife like that, right? Things get serious, not because I don't love them, but because I do love them and they're, they're in danger and in disobedience and I need to call them back to the safe and beautiful place of being under the authority of parents. And that's the heart of Jude here. Sometimes love means you don't get to write the letter you want, but you write the letter that somebody needs, which is just an encouragement for all of of us as Christians. Sometimes we want to get together in our discipleship groups and just talk about the fights that week or, you know, what our kids are doing or we just want to keep it light. We don't want to lean into any conflict. But sometimes, because we love one another, we need to confess or exhort not because we don't care, but because we do. Jude reminds us of that, and that's what he's doing here. And so he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. I found it necessary to write appealing. That word appealing has like just a ton of, of feeling behind it. We, come, we came across that word in the Gospel of Mark when the leper came to Jesus in chapter 1, longing and begging and, and imploring to be healed. It's that same word. He was on his knees appealing that Jesus heal him of his leprosy. When Jairus in chapter 5 came because his daughter was about to die, it's the same word. He's, he's appealing to Jesus that we'd, he'd come and heal her. The intensity that a dad has, begging that somebody would save the life of his daughter, it's the same type of intensity. Jude is bringing to the early church. This isn't life advice. This is intense and it's serious. And he's calling the church to what? It's the very heart of the letter. It's on the screen up here with the logo, Jude, four words, contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Now, the entirety of the letter is really just about this. This is what we're going to spend the next th- three weeks unpacking. 
But this word contend, if you were to look at the Greek, you would be able to recognize whether you can read Greek or not when it's spelled out in English, the word agonize there. It's a word that's tied historically to to, um, sports, specifically the sport of fighting in ancient Greece, games like pancration or wrestling, right? It was contending that language was tied to it. It meant to struggle with real difficulty through danger, strenuous zeal, striving with all your might, specifically in relation for a noble cause. And so as we read this book over the, the next month and as we study it together, like how we need to hear Jude's words, the tone is serious. There's urgency. It's a call to stand up, to be on alert. Like if we heard him rightly and could hear his, his tone and his words, we would get like a, a tingle up our spine. We would have a course of adrenaline. This is serious. I'm standing up. I'm on the edge of my seat listening to Jude's words because he's calling us to, to a noble fight to contend for what? For the faith. The faith, and when Jude says faith here, he's referring to to truths of the Christian faith, the doctrines, the scriptures, the theology, the beliefs that are foundation of who Jesus is and what he's done, and then what that means for us, specifically how we follow him in obedience. And again, we're going to spend the rest of Jude digging into what that looks like and why we're contending But here he gives us the reason in verse 4 because certain people have crept in unnoticed. It's vivid language. It's bringing up something like spies hiding their identity. And Jude is urgently warning the early church that these teachers have kind of stealthily slipped in to the community of believers, these false teachers, and they've gone up to this point unnoticed by most. And that's usually how false teachers roll. They don't come with a business card that says false teacher. It's not in their Twitter bio. (laughs) I'm I'm lying. Don't listen to me. The books they write don't have blurbs like telling you not to read the book in the front page, right? usually comes with misguided endorsements. And Jude tells us a few things, four things about these false teachers. He says, long ago they were designated for this condemnation. Just simply put, what Jude is saying here is that, hey, God's people have always been under the threat of false teachers. From the beginning, they've been under the threat of false teachers, and God has, from the beginning, promised to judge those that lead his people astray through false teaching. So Jude, in a real way, is saying, hey, what you're experiencing is nothing new. And in light of that, what you need is nothing new. You need to remember the faith that was once delivered, something old and true and solid that can never be changed. There is no other gospel. He says these people are ungodly, simply that they're not on a path moving towards God. They're on a path moving away from God and his love. And as a result, result, their lives reflect not love for others, but disdain and use and consumption of other people. They're for their own selfish game. They're in, again, in the truest way, they're using the Lord's name in vain. They're not saying a curse word. They're co-opting, they're hijacking God's name, not to honor him and speak truth, but to try to wield it for their own purposes and their own sinful desires. And because they're ungodly, they're going about this by, thirdly, perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. That word, 
perverting that, that Jude is using. It, it means to change something from one thing to another, and in doing so, you actually totally alter the nature of what that is. These false teachers are doing that with the grace of God, something so good, they're, they're distorting into something so bad. They're telling half-truths, which are full lies and hurting people. They're taking something beautiful, the grace, the real grace of God, and they're making it something ugly. And grace is beautiful, real grace. Grace isn't penance. It's not us paying off a price. It's, it's free forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Grace isn't us earning something on our own by our own good works. Grace is actually undeserved favor and receiving a free gift. It isn't our own self-righteousness. Grace is receiving the righteousness of Christ that's given to us in him. It's not paying off our debts. Grace is a sacrifice paid once and for all for us by Jesus on the cross. And it's not limited to anyone, for everyone and anyone, regardless of anything that we've done. There's nothing so powerful to stand up to the power of the grace of Jesus. There's nothing that we could do. Nothing any of us in this room have ever done cannot hold up against the power of the forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus. That's the beauty of grace. What these false teachers do, and what we're going to see that they do, is they take that message and they say, well, God forgives us. He's obligated to forgive us, so that means we really get to do, right, whatever we want. Author Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he calls this transition from beautiful grace to something called cheap grace. He says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Simply put, it's like wanting to take the gifts of Jesus but reject the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. And remember where Jude began. I'm Jude, servant of Jesus Christ. Grace trains us to, to renounce ungodliness, not become comfortable with it. Grace trains us and equips us to, to reject and fight against sin, not make trees with us. Grace empowers us to grow and change, not stay the same and comfortable in immaturity. And so Jude finally is saying, look, this grace is being perverted. And as a result of this grace being perverted, these false teachers are ultimately denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, these people who have crept in unnoticed they're likely teaching back doctrine, not, not just and maybe not even primarily with words they're saying, but actually upon examination, the way that they're living, theologians are going to tell us. It's subtle, and maybe they actually can, can chime in with correct things in the Bible study, but then you see the way that they're living among the church and the way that they're interacting in relationship is a twisting and a perversion of the beauty of the grace to, to lead people astray. 
and feel like Jesus is there to serve them as an endless well of forgiveness regardless of what they do and feel about him, that there is a total rejection of following Jesus as king, but an attempt to use him and wield him for their own desires. And in doing so, Jude is saying, hey, as they continually live this way, they're actually denying the lordship of Jesus. And so this is what Jude is, is warning us about as a church. This is what he's calling us to look out for in our own lives, in the lives of one another. And, and we just need to recognize this isn't some external danger. He's saying, first and foremost, this is something that's a danger because it can creep in to the life of the church. But what Jude is going to call us to do is fight, contend for truth in Christ in light of who he is, our king. It's Jude's story. And by the grace of God, may it be our story as a church. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, yes, is our friend. Yes, he is our big brother. Yes, he's our savior. But we also thank you that Jesus is our Lord and King. And so... We pray to a greater degree that you would even take these, these next weeks as a church, as we look at the, the beauty and the good news of, of Holy Spirit, the book that you wrote through Jude, we pray that we would come to greater degrees of understanding that you are our king, that we would obey you and follow you closely, knowing that that's the place where joy and life and abundance are truly found. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said.